today, which is from uh, John chapter 3. I mean, sorry, Luke chapter 3. <laughs> We've been in the book of Luke. But we're talking about a guy named John, so you can see my confusion. Okay, so some of you have heard me tell a story uh, from my first year of preaching when a lady decided she needed to have a sit-down with me and tell me that my sermons were accusatory. She went on to tell me that in a recent sermon, I had used the word repentance 39 times. I didn't see the rest of the word counts, but she kept track of that word anyway. Now, in that sermon, it happened to be that one of my texts was from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you, lead you to repentance? Um, so it was hard to avoid the word repentance uh, in that sermon. But in this sermon, I don't suggest anyone keep a tally unless you might run out of lead or ink, because this sermon will involve the repeated use of the words repent and repentance. <laughs> okay? However, I do not want this to distress anyone because the very real truth of the matter is that if we could learn what repentance really is and live a life of repentance, then we would experience much greater grace from our God and much relief for our weary souls. We will also find ourselves more easily overtaken with joy when we live a life of repentance. So for the next two to three weeks, we're going to be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And one thing that is important for us to understand about John the Baptist's ministry is that his calling, his ministry, his charge from Almighty God was to call people to repentance. And that repentance was symbolized by baptism. So we're going to have, as we go through this, uh, we're mainly going to be in the verses 1 through 6, uh, but we're going to talk about the way of repentance. We're going to see three points, that there's a time for repentance, there's a call for repentance, and there's a promise that comes with repentance. So I'm going to read for the full context through verse 22, but then we'll get back to just verses 1 through 6. And I have John on there, don't I? <laughs> I did that on there too. It should be Luke, um, if you can edit that, Andrew. It should have been Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. Um, sorry about that, folks. I'm not infallible nor inerrant. <laughs> All right, so uh, back to Luke chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 22. And he got it on the screen. He's brilliant. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, Luke is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison." Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. All right, so the way of repentance. Again, I had three points for us to consider. There's a time for repentance, there's a call to repentance, and then there's a promise that comes with repentance. First, let us consider the time for repentance. In this case, Luke has carefully given us a timetable. In just two verses, Paul names nine men, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Zechariah. I hope if you have been here any time in the past couple of months that at least two of those names are familiar to you, John and Zechariah. The last we heard about John was in chapter 1 when, as a baby, he leaped in his mother's womb at the approach of Mary, who was pregnant at the time of Jesus. And again, at his birth, we saw that his father affirmed his name would be John, and he gave a beautiful prophetic doxology, which is an outpouring of praise to God. So why did Luke mention all these other names? Well, this reminds us what a detailed historian that Luke was. Because he gave these names, we have a pretty good frame of uh, time when these events took place. In fact, because he listed each of these figures, we can know that most likely the, the ministry of John began either in late year A.D. 28 or early in the year A.D. 29. There aren't a lot of biblical events we can get down to within about a year time frame, but this is one, and it's because Luke gave all those names, and that gave historians the ability to go back and say, okay, when was this guy in office? When was this guy in office? Okay, it must have happened then. 
So we have that as a very good help. We are reminded also when we see these names that Israel at this time is under Roman rule. He lists some of the rulers at that time. And interestingly, he also lists two priests as being high priest. Now, Luke certainly was aware that there's only one high priest at a time. Why does he list Annas and Caiaphas? Did he make a mistake here? Well, no, he didn't make a mistake here. And there are many theories of what was happening here. But what had happened was the Romans had deposed Annas as high priest. But he seems to have made sure that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, would replace him. And it's likely that Annas was really running the show, even though Caiaphas had the title. He was likely a puppet for Annas, who held the real power. And one evidence of this is that we see when Jesus was arrested, he was brought first not to Caiaphas, but to Annas. So again, the fact that Luke listed each of these Roman rulers and also the high priest at the time helps us have a good idea of the time period within about a one-year margin of when John was baptizing people at the Jordan River. We know that God is sovereign in all his timing. And this is especially evident in how he orchestrated world events to bring about his plan of salvation for the elect. Galatians 4.4 tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. A lot of meaning is packed into that phrase, the fullness of time. And much has been written about this, and much has been preached about it. But let it suffice for now to say that all world events at that time, every person who was part of these narratives, all the placements and all the very various locations, even the weather and the climate at the time, all of it was carefully worked out by God to bring about the exact plan that he had. He is truly sovereign, powerful, and a knowing God. Our God is perfect in all his ways. And he has continually perfected and worked out his plan throughout each generation. Without a single error or mistake happening, he has seen to it that his plan is coming out. So, so the, way, the time for repentance, and now we look at the call to repentance. We know about John's birth. Last week, we saw just one incident that's recorded for the entire life of Jesus as a boy in all four Gospels, just that one incident we looked at last week. But for John, we don't have anything about his childhood or even his early adult years. Uh, but here we are plunged right into the thick of his ministry. We see that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And this is very similar to what we learn about many of the Old Testament prophets. And indeed, we may technically say that John was an Old Testament prophet, although we learn about him in the New Testament, uh, as we call the book. I say this because Jesus himself acknowledged John as a prophet of great significance. No one born among women is greater than John, Jesus said. He was the Elisha to come, the Elijah to come. Um, Jesus clearly considered John to be a prophet of note. And why do I say he was an Old Testament prophet? 
because his ministry took place and was completed before the atonement of the new covenant was complete. John then, we may say, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. While Matthew and Mark note John's clothing and diet, which also associate him with the Old Testament prophets, Luke instead jumps right into the ministry of John and the message he preached. Luke doesn't seem to be worried about the clothing and the the locusts and the honey and all that. He just wants us to get right to what the message was. But he does note that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. This reminds us that very often when God has significant dealings with his people, it happens in the wilderness. His preaching ministry was not in a comfortable church with a pulpit and air conditioning. His platform was rocks or the crest of small hills, most likely, and his place of ministry was broad. Uh, broad. It was all the region around the Jordan. It seems he went to areas on both sides of the Jordan. This is the same Jordan River that the Israelites crossed on the miraculous day. So through this water, we're brought into the promised land. And now John was calling the people to a new sort of baptism that in this same water, they may find a new way to come into God's promise. Here in this region, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For some Jews at this time, it was offensive. Because until this time, the only baptism that was done was for new converts to Judaism. It was one of the rites of passage for a Gentile to enter into the Jewish religion. It symbolized the Gentile being unclean and in the need of cleansing in order to be accepted. So what they called a proselyte, a person who's converting, would have to do three things. They had to confess their alignment with the laws of God and the laws of Israel. They had to get circumcised and they had to get baptized. Now John has come and he's telling Jewish people that they need to be baptized. And in a sense, this was scandalous to some of them. The Jews saw baptism as fit only for Gentiles. Yet many came to John to be baptized. And let us remember that this is a baptism of repentance. Add one more repentance to the tally, if you please. Repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so we see that for these people, there was a call to repentance. They were called to repentance by a prophet. You see, Scripture reminds us that God has spoken at various times and in many ways, and through prophets being one of those ways, now he speaks us to us by his son Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. For these people, it, it, it was a prophet that spoke to them and called them to repentance, and this was to prepare for Jesus. But now we have an even better than John the Baptist, even better than Moses, even better than Abraham, even better than Melchizedek. Or as one kid in our Bible quiz program in South Dakota said, milk cheese deck. He couldn't remember how to say it all the time. We have the Lord Jesus himself. And he has proclaimed his gospel to us. No one is prepared to receive Jesus who has not repented. It was true of those called by John. It's true of us today. John's baptism looked forward to what Christ would soon accomplish. When Christians are baptized, we look backwards to what he's done for us. 
If you're not right with God, that is, if your relationship with him is impaired by sin, which is the case for all until they repent and believe in Jesus, then you must repent to receive him. It's that simple. And yet, even for the one who has repented and turned to Christ, a lifelong repentance continues. And it, it remains with us so that we can be constantly coming back to Christ. And each time we repent of sin, we draw closer to him. And each time we repent of sin, we commit to fight the sin better the next time we're tempted. And so throughout our lives, we grow to be more and more like Christ since even though we have his righteousness imputed to our account so that without fear we can face our, life, our death and our judgment, yet we want to live lives pleasing to him, not living in presumption, but living as though he truly is Savior and Lord and to whom we owe all our allegiance and worship. So the message of repentance may then be a beautiful message for everyone. To the believer, we must repent. Each day and each time we realize we've sinned, to the one who has yet to repent and put faith in Jesus and trust him for your salvation, you must do so now. Today is the day of salvation. Repent, and times of refreshing will surely come to the one who repents. Repent. It always feels great to the believer when he or she agrees with God. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession and repentance are not the same, but they should always accompany each other. Confessing is agreeing with God that sin is sin. When we confess, we must also turn from the sin, and that is what repentance is. Repentance means to turn away uh, or turn around. It's making a 180-degree turn away from the sin and towards righteousness. 170 degrees is not enough. We need to turn around 180 degrees, and each time we repent, we should desire to repent completely to completely turn aside from whatever our sin is and go on in the opposite direction. When we do this, we experience victory and stamina to make it through our next trial. James taught that, in fact, we should consider our trials to be joy because when we are tested and make it through that test, we experience new graces and we realize that we've made it through something difficult, whether through a difficult time or a difficult temptation that we are successful in beating back. When we make it through to the other side, we feel our faith growing stronger. Our trust in God is increased and the joy of defeating evil. And so James said, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And James did not say, if you encounter them. He said, when you encounter them, uh, you ought to expect that as the normal course of things, because you're in Christ, if the Lord loves you, he will let you go through trials. Why? Why shouldn't he just make it easy for us, right? So your faith can increase and you grow in grace. And all of this is certainly entwined with our need to repent. 
When we repent, it's usually when we have not gotten through the trial with flying colors, right? But we failed at some point, so we, we repent, and when we repent, when we confess to God that what he calls sin in our lives is sin, when we agree with that, and when we turn from it and go in the opposite direction, then we grow. So whether you are fairly young in this faith or survived many years, keep this in mind. You may continue to grow and mature in the faith until the Lord calls you home. But only if you choose a life that repents always of every sin that you realize. Growth comes through a repentant life. So make a practice of examining yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And when you detect even the smallest hint of failure to serve your Lord well, repent and make a fresh dedication again. And this will go on and on and on. It's not easy. Never really complete that until he perfects us in the end. And of course, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, none of this is possible. None of it. And it was certainly the case for John, as it is the case for every preacher, that calling someone to repentance is only effective when the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration. John could shout, and he likely did. R.C. Sproul took the voice of one calling in the wilderness to mean something more like the voice of one wailing in the wilderness. It was no meek speech that John gave, but a powerful, Holy Spirit-empowered preaching. Now we move on to the promise of repentance. John gave a call of repentance, and today the gospel itself calls everyone to repentance. Now let us look at the promise of repentance, and it's wrapped up in who John the Baptist was, his biblical role, you might say. He was the one Isaiah wrote of. Luke 3, 4, and 6, 4 to 6. It is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He was a voice in the wilderness. And when you read the other gospel accounts of what John said about himself, that's all he saw himself as. I'm just a voice. Nothing more. The gospel tells us he very clearly did not see himself as significant except that he was announcing the coming of Christ and preparing people. But compared to Christ, he saw himself as not worthy to even unstrap his sandal. But John did have a specific task to do. He was to be a voice that called people to prepare the way of the Lord. He was a voice who cried in the wilderness, who wailed. This was not the type of preaching that just made everyone feel good about themselves. This was real, biblical, prophetic preaching. We will look next week at another part of his message. He wasn't exactly smiling John. He warned, he called out sin, he commanded in the name of God that people repent. His voice was not only literally in the wilderness, but in a figurative sense as well. His was the voice calling in the wilderness of sin. His message to the people was to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his paths straight. 
And the way that a person could do this was to be baptized as a demonstration of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And there is a real sense of forgiveness of sins. Although John's baptism is not Christian baptism, it was preparing people to be ready to receive Christ. He, was, he who was prepared by John's baptism is ready to welcome the Lord. Who is ready to receive Jesus? The truly repentant. Jesus demonstrated to Simon what true repentance was. When a woman anointed him and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears, some people were appalled by this behavior, but Jesus showed that this sort of repentance is evidence of someone who has the faith to receive salvation. We find this in Luke chapter 7, starting at 44. Jesus turned towards the woman. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. John was baptizing people who wanted to demonstrate their repentance. And this was to prepare the way for the Lord. The path is to be made straight, the valley filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked made straight and the rough spots smoothed out. How? Through this baptism of repentance. Now we can be certain that just as today a person may be here, they may act like a repentant person, may even be baptized, may even be made a member of the church and yet have never experienced this true sort of repentance. So many in the church are for the sake of appearances there or because they like the community or the food and so with john we also may assume that there was some that weren't genuine probably hey my friends are all going i mean i guess i'll go and dip in the water it'll be good kind of needed a bath anyway who knows and we're going to look at that more next week about how john called out some who weren't genuine what did that mean when he called them a brood of vipers? However, for those who came with true repentance, we are told that this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Kent Hughes writes that it is important for us to see the close connection between re repentance and forgiveness because while no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness, and keep that in mind, no matter how much you repent, God doesn't owe you forgiveness. While no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness in the sight of God, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. The great highway John was building was one of repentance. End quote. We need to keep building this highway. This highway must be built by the church if we want to see the lost cross over into the church. 
And it's got to begin with us. This means we should always be examining ourselves both on the personal level for individual sins and as a church level for any corporate sins we might need to confess before God. To quote from Isaiah, the quote from Isaiah that is used here in Luke gives us the illustration of not a mere road, but a superhighway. This is how you prepare for the king. In Paris, there's a big road with an arch, and I was going to try to pronounce it, but I'm not going to try to pronounce it. You've probably seen pictures of it, though. And on this road, Napoleon marched into Paris. Yet Napoleon did not last long as an emperor. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, will reign forever, so the highway we must prepare for him must be straight. Even valleys will be filled in, mountains and hills made low, crooked spots made straight, and the rough parts smoothed out. This would be like telling an engineer that he must design a highway through Colorado and down through the Grand Canyon. And by the way, Mr. Civil Engineer, this road must be perfectly straight and must be perfectly smooth, and it can have no change in elevation. So get to work on it. Very few engineers would like to head up that project even if they were given unlimited human resources. But any sinner can prepare a way to the Lord. And this is the highway of repentance. There are two particularly strong imperative commanding words in verse 4. They are prepare and make. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so as we approach the end, and I'm certain I've used the word repent and repentance a number of times, And yet, I will say it a few more times here in closing. Jesus died on the cross so that guilty sinners need not suffer God's wrath because of their sin. Every person ever born since Adam, with the miraculous exception of Jesus Christ, the God-man, every other person has been born with a sin nature. Not only were we born with a sin nature, we intentionally and willingly sin against the Creator, God, the Holy holy, holy, eternal, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-known, all-righteous God. We do it because we want to. Who causes us to sin? Do not say that God has tempted you. That would be blasphemy. Yet many blame him for their sin. He created me with a desire to sin, you see, so really, it's his fault, right? Or the woman you gave me, who then says, the serpent you created. It's really your fault, God. Ever since the first sin, people have tried to point the finger of blame back to God one way or another, but he does not make us sin. I read this just a moment ago in Sunday school. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, and when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's he's comparing the desire to a pregnant woman who gives birth then to sin. 
And that sin grows up and brings death. Yes, we have desires that lure us and entice us to sin. These desires are our own. That, this is why Jesus made the point that once the sin had been entertained in the mind, you were already on your way to committing it. And we are all doubly in trouble then. We were born with the sin nature that we all inherit from Adam and Eve, but we also willfully sin against God. And from Adam and Eve's first sin, God showed that blood sacrifice was needed to cover for the sin. Yet throughout time, people have realized that the sacrifice of animals does not really cure the problem. A perfect, sinless person needed to come and be the sacrifice. You see, without that, our sin would have one result. Wrath. God's wrath. And if we die in our sin with no cure for it, we will suffer eternal conscious torment under God's wrath. And this is exactly what we deserve, by the way. It is the wages of our sin. It is our due payment. But God provided a way for guilty sinners to be forgiven. And that was the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Not only does Christ turn away God's wrath from us, which is also called propitiation, he also carries our sin away from us, which is called expiation, which is a little review for the kids in Leland's Thursday night class. Because they learned those two words. And when this happens, the relationship between us and God is restored, and we can anticipate an eternal life of bliss and comfort in the presence of God. God gives to each repentant sinner who puts faith in Jesus all these benefits and many more. If you put faith in Jesus, trusting his sacrifice to be sufficient to do all of these things, you can experience this grace the weight of the burden of your sins will be lifted off of you and you will experience a peace that exceeds what you can understand. How do we get to Jesus then? We must walk the road of repentance. You see, in the end, I'm not afraid to use that word again and again because that word, properly understood, is salvation to the one who believes. I may not be able to convince anyone that this is the truth, but the Holy Spirit of God can. I pray that through the message of truth from God's word, that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to God even now. Do not resist the calling of the Holy Spirit. You are commanded by God to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple. Your mouth must say out loud that Jesus Christ is Lord and you must truly believe with your heart that he was raised from the dead and you will be saved. If you're a believer, continue to live a life of repentance. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Daily resist sin and seek God's help to win those battles. He didn't send us the Holy Spirit just to sit around. He's our helper. He empowers us. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but always provides a way out. Live now for Jesus and for his glory. Put aside the desires of your flesh and live for him. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Seek first the kingdom of God. I am not afraid to call people to repentance because this is a key part of the gospel. And the gospel will never cause me to be ashamed. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So I do not apologize for using the word repentance this morning, my friends. The righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. And the way to stay on the path of faith is by living a life of repentance. Even Martin Luther in his famous 95 um, theses, I saw a funny meme the other day, just a side note. Uh, There's a guy on Twitter that has an account that's called the disgruntled pastor or something like that. And he said that the good thing about Martin Luther is only he only had 95 complaints. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> the first one says, when the Lord Jesus called us to repent, he called us to a life of repentance. That was the first thing on his 95 thesis. And I'm not saying you should follow Martin Luther. I'm saying you should follow Jesus. And he's the one that calls us to do it. May God receive glory as we live out this life. Because he has graciously given us empowerment by his Holy Spirit that we can live this life victoriously. And when we go back and repent and we say, Lord, I did it again. I'm turning again. I'm going back to the right path. Each time you do that, you grow a little in the faith. So do not get discouraged, my friends. It's easy to do that. It's easy to say, I failed, oh my goodness, again. But God is faithful. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness to his glory, and that's how we need to live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it was powerful, not because of me, Lord, but because of you.